Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Um, I'm a fickle guy. I, uh, a few months ago, my favorite Old Testament book was the book of Ruth. Uh, my favorite Old Testament book right now is Genesis. I, uh, I was telling somebody er- earlier that at my former church, I, I taught through Genesis, uh, several years ago, and um, it, it only took me two years to get through Genesis. So, you know, sit back, relax. We'll be here a while. It's good to see you all this morning. Let's get into this. Why do we have Genesis 1 and 2, do you think? I mean, obviously God wanted us to have it, so we have it. But why do you think we have it? Why, for that matter, do you think we have Genesis 1 through 11? I mean, there's a lot of just interesting stuff in the first 11 chapters in Genesis. You have creation, we have a flood, we have a dude named, named uh, Nimrod. Just lots of, just a lot of weird stuff in, in those first 11 chapters. So why are they there? The Bible could have easily begun at Genesis 12 with the call of Abram. We might say that, well, we needed to know how sin entered the world. And it's certainly good that we have that information. It's good that we, that we see that. But we know sins in the world. In fact, in Genesis 12, after Abram is called by God, Abram sins almost immediately. And the further you get into Genesis, the worse the sin gets. So we're, we're very aware of sin. We might say that it was, it's good to know about creation. It's good to know what God did in creation. And, Certainly that's true. But we know that God created everything. The pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament testify to that throughout. So, really, why do we have Genesis 1 and 2 and even through chapter 11? Well, we often say that the Bible is a story of redemption. Sometimes uh, people say, to borrow a phrase, that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus Christ, and those are absolutely true. So one reason the Bible begins at the beginning is to give a complete story of redemption. Redemption is in the very earliest earliest chapters of Genesis. And that the Bible is a unified story that was written in space and time. It was written by real people. And they're written by people in their historical, in their cultural, in their religious context. The writer of Genesis, most likely Moses, wrote in the context of seeing Jews becoming a nation. Moses had, or God had delivered the Jews from Egypt. God had brought the Jews to Mount Sinai to meet him and to receive the law in the first covenant. And God had brought them to the brink of the promised land. God called them to worship and to follow only him. But this is set against the cosmologies of the day. Cosmology is just a way to talk about uh, how people understand the universe, how people understand creation and the purpose of humans. The Jews knew about the ancient cosmologies of their day. They knew about the Egyptian cosmology. They knew about the Babylonian, ancient Babylonian cosmology. And they knew what they thought of about gods and what they thought of about creation and what they thought of as the purpose of humans. So given that, given this historical and the cultural and religious context of the world that the Jews lived in, we might divine three purposes. 
for the opening chapters of Genesis. First, God wants us to know him. He wanted the Jews to know him. He wanted, him, he wanted them to know his character and his attributes and his plans. Now, we know that God's revelation of himself was progressive. That, that is, we get a little bit of information about God in the beginning, a little more later on, a little more later on. The pinnacle of God's revelation of himself in, in uh, the Old Testament is probably in Exodus 34. And, of course, we have seen the progression of God's revelation all the way up to Jesus Christ, who shows us God exactly who he is. But in Genesis 1, even in Genesis 1, God reveals himself in some very important ways, and not just as creator. Much of the opening chapters of Genesis is a polemic. Now, a polemic is simply a, essentially a refutation. Somebody says something, they write something, they write something in a book, and somebody else says, no, 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 that's wrong. And so I need to write a polemic against that. And you might... Uh, polemic, you can think of something like uh, the man wrote this book as a reaction, as a polemic against the revisionist history of the Civil War. That's all a polemic is. And Genesis is, in part, a polemic. It's a polemic against the cosmologies of the day, against the understanding of gods and, and cre- how creation happened and the purpose of humans. God wants to set the record straight. He wants the Jews to know how it really happened and what the way the world really is. Which leads to the third purpose. You. Purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 and so on is for humans. To humans to know who they are and who they are in relation to God. And it's more than just being saved from sin, although, of course, that is critically important. It's about who we are in relation to God. So let's talk about some conditions. In the ancient Egyptian creation story, we hear of the god Atum. It's said that God, the god Atum came up out of a dark, dark, swirling, watery chaos, an abyss. He's sometimes portrayed as a self-generated egg out of which he emerges, saying of himself that he evolved himself into whatever he wanted to be. Isn't that nice? A tomb spawned a son, Shu, god of the air, and Tefnut, a daughter, goddess of the, of the water. Shu and Tefnut separated the water into law and order and stability, dividing the chaos of it all into light and dark. Shu and Tefnut, in turn, had Geb, god, uh, the god of the earth, and Nut, goddess of the sky. That at first were all tangled together, but Shu and Tefnut separated, separated them and pushed Nut into the heavens, the goddess of the sky. The Babylonian creation story starts with a swirling, watery chaos, an abyss. The water was divided into sweet water, fresh water, who was the god Apsu, and salty and bitter water, who was the god Tiamat. Apsu was killed by some younger gods, and Tiamat became enraged. And she went out to kill these younger gods, and she drew all the forces of the chaos to destroy them. And out of this comes a fellow named Marduk, a Babylonian god who begins a great war with Tiamat and eventually kills her. And he does that by splitting her in two. What Marduk does with the two halves is that he separates them, 
Half goes to the heavens, half goes to the earth. These stories have commonalities among them. For example, the watery chaos out of which the gods emerge and out of which they create order is common to these stories. There's a commonality of separation. Separation of, for example, the heavens and the earth and waters from water. In both the Babylonian and the Egyptian creation stories, humans are created to help the gods hold back the chaos and to serve them and to worship them as gods. So with that, we come to Genesis. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without water, without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of, the God, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. <clears throat> the Hebrew conception of heavens and earth differs a little bit from what we normally think of heavens, of heavens and earth. Often when we say heavens, we think of where God is. The Jews, especially here in Genesis, thought of the heavens as the sky. The Hebrews thought of, when it says uh, the heavens and the earth, they thought of the earth not as the globe, the planet that we think about. They thought of it as the land. So you could say that in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. The Hebrew word for beginning here refers to the state of something. The beginning state of something, not the beginning necessarily, not the beginning of everything, but the beginning state of something or the condition of something. Genesis 1.1 refers to an original act of creation of the skies and the land prior to the six days of creation. Everything that was created in the six days of creation with the possible exception of light came from this original act of creation in Genesis 1.1. The skies were created on day two. The land was created on day three. The state of this original act of creation was without shape and empty. Sometimes you, were, you might be reminded of the traditional formless and void. In Hebrew, you could also call it wild and waste. And it was dark. I don't know if you've ever been in a uh, sensory de- deprivation temp- uh, chamber. I haven't. One of the purposes of that is that you can put a person in one of these places and have it be completely dark and completely soundless. That's kind of the picture that's being talked about here. And the darkness covered this watery deep, this watery abyss. So you have a picture here of the skies and the land and this water all kind of mixed together without any cohesion, without substance, and it was all dark. You could say that it was chaos. And here, there's a in this biblical story, there's a commonality with the ancient uh, cosmologies of creation. It started as a dark, watery, chaotic abyss. Now we must say here that in the biblical story, it's important to understand that while it was dark and while it was chaotic, the skies and the land were neither sinful nor evil. The Bible doesn't say that they were anything like that. But they weren't yet good. They had to be acted upon. I said earlier that this passage describes not the first day of creation, but the beginning or the condition before the six days. The condition, void, empty, chaotic. The Hebrew word for watery deep in this passage is the Hebrew word tahom, which describes a deluge or an abyss, or even the primeval ocean. The ancients thought of the ocean as a chaotic place, as a frightening place. They didn't want to go out very far out into the ocean. It was a place to be avoided. That's the kind of thing that Tahome describes. But there's another condition. 
The Spirit of God was hovering or moving, or you could even say vibrating over the surface of the water. And with this, an immediate change happens. We don't see it in English. The Hebrew word for water here, when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the water, the Hebrew word for, for water there is not to home, but it's mayim, which is the general Hebrew word for water that describes a river or a pond, a lake or a pool. Not a chaotic abyss, but life-giving water. In both the Egyptian and Babylonian creation stories, we see a battle among the gods to bring about order out of chaos. A tomb has to create other gods to tame the chaos. Marduk has to battle to subdue the chaotic waters of Tiamat. In contrast, Yahweh personally touches the waters and brings order out of chaos. He does not have to defeat other gods. There are no other gods. Nor does he have to create other gods to tame the chaos. He simply moves or hovers, touches the chaos, and he brings it to order. It's a simple, the tu- it's a simple touch of the God who is there, not a God that's self-generated out of an egg. Yahweh is eternally present, fully sovereign, able to create and bring an end to the chaos with a touch. So let's talk about the creation of the skies and the land. Genesis 1, 3 through 25. This is a lengthy passage, so bear with me here. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, so God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning, marking the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, and let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening, and there was morning, the second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. It was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and trees on the land bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. It was so. The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs to indicate seasons and days and years. And let them serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. It was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. He made the stars also. God placed the lights in the expanse of the sky to shine on the earth, to preside over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. God created the great sea creatures and every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. It was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds and cattle according to their kinds and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. That's about five and a half days of creation. We'll get to the rest of it pretty soon. You know, there's no way in the time we have to fully flesh out everything that's in this passage. So I just want to highlight a few points. First, I want to highlight the time of creation. The scriptures, you know, don't um, try to prove God, prove his existence. The scriptures just assume God. In the beginning, God. In the same way, this passage does not attempt to prove a six-day creation. The passage simply assumes it. Moses would not have considered God's creation as an evolutionary process. The Hebrew word for day is yom. Yom, the word yom can mean day or daylight or a year or an indeterminate amount of time. It can even mean a storm. But every time the word yom in the Old Testament is used with a numerical adjective in the Old Testament, the first day, the second day, the third day, so on, it always means, always means a 24-hour day. Combine that with the description of evening and morning. There was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. And can combine that as well with the consecration of the seventh day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. The passage simply doesn't allow for any other understanding of the length of days of creation. But there's another aspect of time to consider. When God said, let there be light, the passage says, and there was light. When the Bible says, God, when God says, let there be uh, uh, fish in the sea and birds in the air, the Bible says, and it was so. We should understand that, that these acts of creation are instantaneous. It's not like when God said, let there be light, a little dot of light popped up, like a little light in a, from a flashlight in a dark room. It wasn't just a small light. It was light. And it wasn't just light. It was all kinds of light. We'll talk about that in a moment. Psalm 33, 9 says, For he spoke... And he came into exist, and it came into existence. He issued a decree, and it stood firm. And then there's the scope of creation. This passage does not attempt to cover everything that was created, but many things were created in, in each act of creation. For example, again, when God said, "Let there be light," not only not only light was created, there was all kinds of light and forces that were created. Commentary, dear Henry Morris. At the same time, the presence of visible light waves necessarily involves the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Beyond the visible light waves are, on one hand, ultraviolet light and all the other shortwave length radiations, and on the other hand, infrared light and all the other long-wave phenomena. In turn, setting the electromagnetic forces into operation, in effect, completed the energizing of the physical cosmos. All the types of force and energy which interact in the universe involve only electromagnetic, gravitational, and nuclear forces. And all these had now been activated. Scientists today are saying that there may be a fourth force in the universe, but even if that's true, it was also activated on that day. And in addition, when God created the sun and the moon and the stars on the fourth day, he also created quasars. Black holes, comets, asteroids, the rings around Saturn, dark matter, interstellar objects. All that was created on that day. 
And then there's the polemic of creation. We've already talked about Genesis being in part a polemic. In these cosmologies of the day, the sun, the moon, and the stars were gods. They were to be worshipped. They were to be appeased. They were to be asked for favors. Genesis makes crystal clear that they are only objects of creation. Inanimate objects. Certainly not gods. They are objects that God created and that God is fully sovereign over. God alone is to be worshipped. And then there's the focus of creation. The focus of creation, the focus of the creation story in Genesis 1 is the land or the earth. The third, the fourth, the fifth, the six days are all about what is being created on the land or about what is being created for the land. On the third day, for example, it was vegetation and plants and trees and fruit. On the fourth day, lights set in the sky to set times and seasons, sun and moon to mark day and night. All of this was for the land. All of this was for the earth. And the land, the humans, or excuse me, the earth, are for humans. Which is the next point, the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation, get ready, here it is. You've never heard it before, but here it is now. The purpose of creation is you and that little baby. (laughs) The purpose of creation is you, and it's me, and it's everybody in Avon, and it's everybody in Rochester, and it's everybody in New York, and it's even everybody in the wacky state of California. After God created the lights and the trees and the birds and the fish and the animals, God created humans. God created the land for us. Psalm 8. For the music director, according to the Giddah style, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your reputation throughout the earth. You reveal your majesties in the heavens above from the mouth of children and nursing babies. You have adorned praise, ordained praise on on account of your adversaries so that you might put an end to the vindictive enemy. When I look up to the heavens which your fingers made and see the moon and the stars which you set in place of what importance is the human race that you should notice them of what importance is mankind that you should pay attention to him and make them a little less than the heavenly beings you crowned mankind with honor and majesty you appoint them to rule over your creation you have placed everything under their authority, including all the sheep and the cattle, as well as the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that moves throughout the currents of the seas. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how magnificent is your reputation throughout the earth. Let's talk about image. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. God said, let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness. So they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth, and every tree that has the, has fruit 
uh, with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth, and to every kind of bird in the air, and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has living breath in it, I give every green plant for food. It was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's only after the creation of humans that God called the creation very good. The sense of the Hebrew there calls for attention to the creation, calls for attention to the creation of humans. It's as if God is saying, look, look at the creation. It's also clear that the creation of humans is substantially different than the creation of everything else. As Psalm 8 suggested, humans are the highest of God's creation. And again, we can't deal with everything in this passage, but there's one item I want to address. And it's that big question. What does it mean for humans to be made in the image of God? To be made in his likeness. Image and likeness, there are two words to describe one idea. The idea is that in some way humans are like God. Being God's image is special and it's unique. There's nothing like it said about the animals. So what does it mean? Sometimes it's said that humans are in the image of God because humans have intelligence. They have the ability to choose, the ability to have a relationship with God, self-awareness, conscience, the ability to communicate, free will, the ability to make moral choices. However, many animals have some of these qualities and these abilities to one degree or another. My dog makes choices. My dog makes stupid choices. My dog expresses emotions. When I say the word walk, no matter what context it's in, my dog gets excited because she thinks it's time to go for a walk. My dog can communicate. Recently, uh, there was a gorilla who uh, died recently that was taught to communicate with humans using sign language. But the Bible makes clear animals are not made in the image of God. When it comes to having a relationship with God, when it comes to making moral choices, a child in the womb or a newborn child do not possess those abilities. Yet, a newborn child and a child in the womb is made in the image of God. We get a clue as to what being made in God's image image means in verse 26 and 28. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so... They may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. And then in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. To be made in God's image is to rule with him and to represent him, to act in his place in the realm that he created for humans. You could say that humans were to be co-regents with God in this matter of ruling over the physical creation. Humans were to rule at his direction and under his authority. In Genesis 2, we see an expression of that rule where Adam is, where Adam names the animals. And God tells Adam to care for the garden that's in Eden. Humans were to manage the earth ruling with God and representing him. Humans were to make God known, and that's why I sometimes use the phrase that we are God's imagers. 
Humans are to be God's imagers to one another and to the world. But as we know, sin marred God's image in humans, and our role as God's imagers was altered. We'll come back to that. Finished creation, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he, he, on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. Genesis 2.1 is the summary statement of creation. When God created the skies and the land and everything in them, he also created all the physical and organic processes that would sustain life. Processes like biology and chemistry and geology and, and astronomy and physics. One thing we didn't mention when we were talking about the days of creation is that Plants and animals were made according to their kinds. Kind can be understood as a category or even as a species. All the processes were set in place at creation so that, for example, a rose bush will produce rose bushes. Dogs will produce dogs. Humans will produce humans. But a rose bush will not produce a tree. A dog will not produce a rabbit. And within the kinds is the vast variety of different variations. A red rose has all the information contained within it to produce a white rose, or a purple rose, or a yellow rose. It certainly takes ingenuity on the part of humans for that to happen, but it's all there. My dog, Kipper, who we mentioned before, has all the information necessary... It's hard for me to believe this. Has all the information necessary in her to produce a dachshund, or a dalmatian, or my wife's favorite, a corgi. And contained in humans is all the information necessary to produce the wide variety of shapes, skin tone, and eye color, and hair types, and in some cases, no hair at all. And all the features we see in humans, and it doesn't take very much imagination when I stand up here and look out over you guys. God made all of that when he created And on the seventh day, creation was finished, and God rested. God wasn't tired. Let's make that clear. He rested because the work was done. And it says that God blessed the seventh day, meaning he sanctified it, he he consecrated it, he made it holy. And this was the basis for the Sabbath day of rest in Judaism, where Jews are called to do no work, but rather to focus on and honor God. It's even the basis of the writer of Hebrews when he said that we need to enter God's rest. The seventh day is special not because it's seven, but because it reminds us that we should spend time with God, reflecting on all that he's done and reflecting on who he is. And in our context today, that we reflect on the fact that God is creator. And in the beginning, he created the skies and the land. I want you to think about holding up a mirror. We'll get to that in a second, but I want you to think about it. With the distortion of sin, our role as God's imagers has changed. The mandate to rule and to subdue the earth still exists, but because of the curse of Genesis 3, the task is far harder to accomplish. And humans just don't do well at that because of our sin. 
There will be a time when that gets restored. There will be a time when we will rule again. There will be a time when we reign with God again. Go read Genesis 22, 1 through 5. The call to represent God, to image him, now now takes on a greater importance, a greater place, because while all humans are, God, are born in God's image, because of sin, humans cannot image God properly. It is only those who know God that can image him properly, to represent him to the world. But this task didn't begin with Christians. The Jewish nation was to represent God. The Jewish nation was to image God to the other nations, even in exile. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah, God had uh, Jeremiah write a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And in the letter, he said things, you know, settle down, have families, make homes, make businesses, live in the land. And then he says this in that letter. He says, work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. The word for peace, prosperity, prosper and prospers and prosper in that passage is the word shalom. Caleb talked about shalom last week, and that shalom just doesn't mean peace, the absence of conflict. Shalom means wholeness and completeness and fullness. The Jews in exile in Babylon were called to bring shalom to Babylon. They were called to be God's imagers. But now the role of being God's imagers falls on believers. 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21 So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. And he's given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his plea through us, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Like the Jews in exile in Babylon who were charged with bringing shalom to Babylon, believers who are exiles in this world are God's imagers, ambassadors, using Paul's word, to represent to those, to represent God to those who do not yet know him. It's God's imagers, it's God's imagers we can bring shalom to people who do not know him. And I expect that most of you in this room who are believers in Christ, somebody came into your life. And showed you who God was. This is the gospel of Adam. Part of the gospel of Adam. To image God. To show God. To other human beings who need to know him. So, I asked you to think about holding up a mirror. Now I want you to think about it. In your mind's eye, hold up a mirror to your face. Take a close look at yourself. If you are a believer in Christ, you are God's imager. You have been given the ministry to image God to those around you. Paul calls it a ministry to see people reconciled to God, to have peace with God, to become a new creation. You see, God still creates. He creates new creatures to be his imagers. 
creates new creatures who are transformed by faith in Christ. You are God's imagers. If you are a believer in Christ, you are God's imagers, so people will be reconciled to him so that they can have shalom with God. And then they can image God to others. Of all this creation, of all this work that God did, of all the intricacies of creation, things that we can't even imagine, of all of those things, the purpose of creation is you. And your purpose, our purpose, is to be God's imagers. God created you for that purpose. So take a good look in the mirror. Let's pray. Father God, we are um, blown away by your creation. Like the psalmist, we look up in the skies and see what you've done and all the creation you've done, and we are taken back. We are set back on our heels and we're going, God, why did you make us like this? To be just a little lower than the heavenly beings, to rule over the earth, to subdue it, to be imagers. Yet you called us to that. And God, we thank you for the day that somebody came into our life and imaged God to us. We thank you for the day, Father, that we realized what you were called us to and we accepted Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would be reminded of our role as your imagers. And even today, Lord, that we would go out and image God to people, especially people who need to know him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.